My name is Keith Beavers, and look, I know that history repeats itself and that fashion comes back, but what are we doing with the 90s right now? Why are we doing the 90s? What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tastings director of Vine Pair, Vine Pair Keith on Insta. And what is happening? Okay, so we, we tackled Sonoma, went into a deep dive. Let's dive into Napa. Yeah, this one is, uh, wait till we, let's, it's gonna, let's do this. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Louis M. Martini Winery, where an 85-year legacy of making Cabernet Sauvignon is still going strong. Everything Cabernet Sauvignon is celebrated at Martini, the history, the winemaking, the wine. Visit the Martini tasting room and sip a cab inside, outside in a cabana, or underground in a cellar. Or try a full culinary exploration from the in-house chef. I'll be there. The people at Louis M. Martini Winery are serious about cab. Taste it and you'll know why cab is king. Okay, wine lovers, so it's time to talk about Napa. And we talked about Napa Valley and, you know, the AVA in a previous episode. And if you haven't, go ahead and check that out. It'll give you a nice map of of the wine country of Napa. Um, and in this episode, just like with the Sonoma episode, I want to get you a little bit more comfortable with Napa because... Sonoma and Napa are neighbors, but they are so different from each other. Adam and I actually went from Sonoma to Napa, which is only about a 25-minute drive. It's kind of cool. It's also a beautiful drive because, you know, it's California. But if you're flying into San Francisco, it's just as easy to get to Napa as it is to Sonoma. It's actually actually a shorter drive, whereas the Sonoma drive is about an hour and 45 minutes. Going to Napa is only about an hour, maybe a little bit over an hour. You basically take the 101 to Interstate 80 to California 29. And California 29 is what gets you into Napa. And that that route, 29, is where all the famous, well, not all, but most of the famous wineries are on. We'll get to that in a second. You take exit 18A onto 1st Street, and here you are, basically in the main artery of downtown Napa. 1st Street will take you right through the center of downtown towards the Napa River, which you can just, if you go over the Napa River, there's actually a very famous indoor market called the Oxbow Market. It's, again, amazing. You know, this is California, all local foods, local fare. It's it's a beautiful indoor market. thing is about this downtown Napa, what really fascinates me, and you know, wine lovers, how much I love history. And I've always wanted to know, like, where this town started. So the reason why I took you to the Oxbow Market is if you were to turn back around and go back into Napa, the town, you would be on 1st Street, you cross over the river, and your first light is Main Street. Then you take a left on Main Street and you go down to 3rd Street. So you're on Main Street and 3rd. And right there on the corner of Main Street and 3rd, the first building in Napa was built, and it was a saloon. I just think it's so cool. You're looking around this beautiful downtown area with fine dining and all these nice restaurants. But if you go to that little corner, 
it's where it all began. The saloon's not there anymore. It's just, I think, a government building or something like that. And if you're on Main at the corner of 3rd Street and you take a right on 3rd, you're going back into the city and the first street you cross is Brown Street. And Brown Street is where it all began. And if you listen to the American Wine History series that I did, you'll notice that a lot of these settlers acquired these land grants from Mexican officials during that time when California was Mexico, specifically George C. Yaunt, and then, of course, Yauntville became Yauntville. Well, a guy by the name of Nathan Coombs in 1847 was granted Rancho Entre Napa, which was basically from Brown Street, which I was just talking, to the river. So if you take that left and you go down to Main Street and 3rd and you take a right on 3rd Street to Brown, right there is where it all began. From Brown Street to the river, and he chose this area specifically because this part of the river is the highest point of the river, and it was good a, a good um, docking area for steamboats. That is a 600, it's 600 yards from Brown Street to the river. Napa began as a 600-yard little area. And by 1859, when John Pratchett was the first person in Napa to open a commercial winery, Napa, the city, was a thriving boom town of all kinds of business. It had one of the largest tanneries in the United States. It was the hub for the lumber industry. There were sawmills all around Napa. There was actually a silver rush in 1858, which brought a lot of people to this area as well, because that's where the silver was. And as Napa developed, it became a significant hub of this part of California. It was the banking center for all the businesses in the surrounding area. It was the economic center for everything. And as wine north of Napa, as that wine country began to grow... So, too, did Napa tremendously. But the thing was, Napa was not only a place for agriculture and farming and all that, even though the wine industry was building. It was also a destination for the wealthy of San Francisco and the surrounding area to come and enjoy themselves. In 1860, or in the 1860s, a man by the name of Sam Brannan literally bought the entire upper part of Napa Valley because of these hot springs. He wanted to create a resort up there, and he did. It's been it's now called Indian Springs, but it's been had a couple names throughout the years. And to get people up to this place, and we'll talk about where that is because that's along Route 29, he built a well, he um, advocated for a train to be built from downtown Napa to the Springs to help his business. And that train is still there today. It doesn't go all the way to to Calistoga anymore. It goes from downtown Napa to, I think, St. Helena, which is just almost a Calistoga. And it's kind of neat. Now, it's, you know, you can look at this train as like being a little bit cheesy. You're, you're, You're on this train. You're going up and down what is Route 29. You're seeing all the famous wineries. You can dine on the car or you can just, I think there's only two stops on the entire train line, but it's kind of a neat thing to do. It's very historical. It's kind of this thing, you know, you, you go on this train and you, you're, you're kind of back in time when Napa was developing. It's, I don't know, I think it's kind of great, but the fact that it still exists and that this city to me felt like it will do anything it can to accommodate 
a visitor. It's a visitor-centric place. And if you think of the history of Napa, again, for my uh, American Wine History uh, series, this is what they were trying to create, a business, a fine wine region that was a business. They, they were, asking, they were, they were um, asking people from San Francisco to come up to Napa to experience this thing. And what we see today is literally, I think, the culmination of the idea that was formed back in the 1940s when they wanted to do what they wanted to do with Napa. Napa's transportation system is the Valley Intercity Neighborhood Express. You get that acronym? V-I-N-E. Vine. I mean, but Napa is how America does a fine wine region. Adam and I got into Napa right there on 1st Street. There's, an, uh, there's a hotel called the Andaz Hotel. It's a very nice hotel. Then we check our bags. We go to another hotel just a couple blocks down called the Archer Hotel. And they have a rooftop bar restaurant. And when you're sitting there on that rooftop bar restaurant at the Archer Hotel, which is another beautiful hotel, you're looking at Napa Valley. You have a mountain range to your right a mountain range to your left, and then just wine. You can just see all of it. And it's kind of amazing because if you're going to Napa and you're, that's where you're going to go. So to sit there on a roof, rooftop restaurant in Napa, looking into the valley is pretty amazing, especially when the sun sets, man. Then on the way back to the hotel, before we even, before we go to dinner, we stop by Gallo's Brandy Library. And what's really great about this, this is another awesome historical moment in this part of California where Ernest and Julio Gallo, who came to this area from Modesto, fell in love with the idea of brandy. And Julio Gallo was pretty obsessed with making brandy. And what's amazing about this is you go to this place and you're sitting down and you have a flight of these brandies from Gallo and you get the entire history while you're tasting of, of that moment in time. And it's still going today. The, the obsession with Brandy and uh, Giulio Gallo is amazing because what he did was create a Brandy that was specifically American in that the grapes that are used to make the Brandy are varieties grown in Napa and Sonoma. So this is a man making brandy from grapes like Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Merlot, other wild sort of uh, more lesser known grapes like Cunois and Syrah. But that's what this wasn't done before. And he created something beautiful out of it. So if you get a chance, if you're in Napa, you should definitely go to the brandy library and get a whole historical lesson while drinking awesome brandies from the Gallo family kind of getting a sense of that fine wine region vibe, right? Then, of course, Adam and I go to dinner that night, and we go to a restaurant called Charter Oak. This is a beautiful sort of stone house-like restaurant up Route 29, and it's fine dining, beautiful food, wonderful wine list. It's, it's a fine dining restaurant in a fine wine region. We just had to check it out to see what it was like to eat like that in Napa because it is a fine wine region, right? And what's really cool about these restaurants is, yeah, they're expensive and they're, they're wonderful and beautiful, 
but they still adhere to a farm to table vibe. Even, I mean, being so close to Sonoma, why wouldn't you? So if we're ordering food on the menu and it's, it's nine o'clock or eight o'clock at night, they may already be out of some of the stuff because of supply from, you know, local farms. And it's, so I just, it's just wild that it's a fine dining region and it's a fine wine region, but it's still farm to table. That's wonderful. The next day, Adam and I ended up at Louis M. Martini Winery. And I have an interview next week with the winemaker of this winery, and it's awesome. And just like in Sonoma, when, um, you know, we were talking to Brene, we're kind of seeing the future of Sonoma. Talking to Michael Eddy from Louis M. Martini, we're, gonna, we're starting to see the future of Napa. And I'm going to get into all of that next week. But the reason why I say this is that next day we're, we're heading up. So what we have to do is we're in downtown Napa. We go take first street all the way to exit, all the way to 29 and we start hitting 29 North. Now wine lovers, we hear a lot about Napa. You hear about Mondavi, Sequoia Grove, Daryush. These are, these are names of wineries that are just absolutely famous and a testament to Napa Valley and what it's accomplished. You have Louis M. Martini, which we were headed to, which was, has been around since the 1930s. And then you have Mondavi, and you have Sequoia Grove and all these guys. It's just a, almost like a, a chronological map of Napa's development. Because there's also a bunch of new stuff out there. There's a winemaker called Ashes and Diamonds, and their wine-tasting facility is on Route 29 and it just looks a little bit more modern but you're you're driving up Route 29 and just one winery after another as you drive through these AVAs if you listen to my Napa episode I talk about all the AVAs in Napa and if you're going up Route 29 you're literally hitting almost every single one well in the valley every single one till you get to the most northern AVA Calistoga the most northern AVA in the valley because you still have AVAs up in those mountains so we stop at Lewis and Martini, talk to Michael Eddy. Again, great episode next week. You're going to love this interview. Um, but, you know, this is Napa. So we also decided that while we were at Lewis and Martini, we wanted to try their heritage tasting, which is hosted in this huge dining room in the sort of guest facility of the winery, the visiting tasting room facility of the winery, which is fairly new. And it's just, it's, it's huge and it's beautiful. You sit at this, these beautiful tables and you have a selection of their small lot wines and they pair each wine with a course. It's this, it's not a lot of food, but it's enough to get a sense of the pairing. There's also a bar up front right when you walk in that you can taste and stuff like that. It was an awesome tour of the facility. And again, next week's going to be an awesome episode. Oh, and there's also a bunch of really cool historical documents in the tasting room wanted to show more of Napa history. Can you tell I'm obsessed with history? After Louis M. Martini, we stayed on Route 29. We went to a winery called Long Meadow Ranch. Guys, if you ever get a chance to try Long Meadow Ranch, the wines are really awesome. And but we didn't get a we weren't we didn't we weren't there for the winery. They actually have a restaurant on their property called Farmstead. It's one of the best lunches I've ever had. It's it's an amazing place. Again, farm to table right there on Route 29. And then we did something that I've really always wanted to do and never had a chance to do. And you guys should probably do it. It's really awesome. We literally drove the, the perimeter of the Valley. (laughs) So we drove up route 29 and then when we got to Calistoga, we hit, we took a right. And when you take a right at Calistoga, 
you get onto what's called the Silverado Trail. That's that famous road that everyone talks about. And this is a much smaller, much more quaint, quieter, more winding road with yet again amazing wineries lining the Silverado Trail. It's on Route 29 that you see all the most famous wineries you hear about. And it's on the Silverado Trail that you see the signs of all the wineries that you hear about because they're not all there. You can't see them all. But it was just amazing to take in the entirety of the valley driving from Napa downtown all the way up to Calistoga, then, then you know, east and then south down the Silverado Trail back to Napa. It's pretty awesome. So I think listening to what I've been talking about with Napa, you kind of get, you really get a sense of how these neighbors, Sonoma and Napa, are absolutely, completely different. Now, in Napa, when you're up in the mountains, you're in the Maya Camas or the Vacas, you know, you're not in the business of Sonoma. It's the valley that has just a lot of activity going on. But the thing about Napa is because it's such a center, because it's our fine wine region, you can just be in Napa and you see all the changes throughout the generations right in front of you. The, all the tasting rooms, all of the, the wineries from back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and you see the 70s and the 80s, and you even see the ones that are brand new just along Route 29. Napa is a curated experience for you as a wine lover to go and visit. And this has been the plan for Napa since the Napa Valley Vintners Association formed in the 1940s. And when they started attracting people from San Francisco to come up and see what was going on, that business plan, that motto, that mission statement is still true today. And there's beauty there. There, we have our own fine wine region with amazing hotels and restaurants and fine dining and Cabernet Sauvignon. And it's just, it's all there for you to enjoy. It's very easy. Whereas in Sonoma, it's a little bit different. It's a little more geographically um, diverse. You have to go and find places. But there's beauty in both of these things. Where Sonoma was the beginning of it all, Napa is almost the culmination of it. But just like I saw change happening in Sonoma, I'm seeing change happen in Napa as well. For example, next week we're hearing this interview with Michael Eddy, the winemaker at Louis M. Martini. Louis M. Martini has been in Napa since 1933. Michael Eddy is the first winemaker of this winery that is not a member of the family. So there's change happening in Napa as well. And just like in Sonoma, we have young winemakers in Napa who are either taking over a family business or are starting their own wineries and trying to make change happen in Napa as well. And you see that a lot in downtown because even though there's the, there's the hotels and sort of the, the, the regular stuff you would imagine would be there, there are new kinds of restaurants and wine bars opening up. The last night that Adam and I were in Napa, we went to a wine bar slash wine shop called Compline. When you're having dinner at Compline in downtown Napa, the wine list doesn't have a bunch of Cabernet Sauvignon on it. It has other wines from around Napa. So there is this new vibe that is working in tandem with the classical vibe of Napa. You have the Cabernet Sauvignon. You have that sort of like old school vibe that continues to evolve. And now you have this new energy 
with new stuff happening. I don't know if you remember the interview with Brene Royal, but there was a point in the interview where she said she's tasting really cool stuff from Napa. Like she said, oddball stuff. And what that says is even though Cabernet Sauvignon rules the land of Napa, it's not the only thing happening out there. And there's so much more that Napa can give. And I, just, I think this is a new generation of winemakers that are doing that. But in the Cabernet Sauvignon realm, there are new winemakers giving new life into Cabernet Sauvignon as well, which we'll hear next week. So that's my Napa deep dive, kind of giving you guys a sense of what it's like to be there. So if you ever go, you don't have to feel intimidated. It's a wine region. And I know I probably said the term fine wine region more in this episode than I have in any other episode. But, you know, you're going to go there. It's a little expensive, but it's awesome. It's so great to be in this part of history. If you love wine in, in, in the U.S., I mean, this is just being in Napa and seeing the history there is, is pretty amazing stuff. Okay, so next week we're going to have an interview with Mike Eddy, the head winemaker at Louis M. Martini, and get a really cool sense of even more Napa history and what the future looks like. I'll see you next week. Fine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Louis M. Martini Winery, where an 85-year legacy of making Cabernet Sauvignon is still going strong. Everything Cabernet Sauvignon is celebrated at Martini, the history, the winemaking, the wine. Visit the Martini tasting room and sip a cab inside, outside in a cabana, or underground in a cellar. Or try a full culinary exploration from the in-house chef. I'll be there. The people at Louis M. Martini Winery are serious about cat. Visit thebarrelroom.com to get a taste of it today, where shipping is available. You'll know why cab is king.